Welcome to BrainBeat, a podcast series featuring discussions with experts on brain health and function brought to you by the National Academy of Neuropsychology Foundation. I'm Heidi Rossetti. Our guest today has made exploring the nature of human memory his life's work. Combining psychology and neuroscience, he has made pioneering contributions that have shaped our understanding of memory. A professor and past chair of psychology at Harvard University, Dr. Daniel Schechter is a world leader in the neuroscience of memory. His work, including over 400 peer-reviewed articles, has garnered numerous accolades, including election to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the National Academy of Sciences. His 2001 book, The Seven Sins of Memory, was named a notable book of the year by the New York Times and won the American Psychological Association's William James Book Award. This popular book describes the pitfalls of our memory and how it frustrates us, protects us, and endlessly fascinates us. He recently completed an updated 20th anniversary edition of The Seven Sins of Memory that will publish in mid-September. Welcome, Dr. Schachter. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for the nice introduction. Of course. All right. Well, the ways memory is imperfect are concepts that you have been refining since your original article on that topic in 99. What do you know now that you didn't know that? Wow. Uh, We could talk about that for a long time. Um, And that's, of course, a question that greatly interests me because that was something I really focused on when I wrote this update of the seven sins of memory. And so I think that for each of the sins, it turns out that, you know, we've learned new and useful basic information, both about how some of these memory sins or memory foibles come about. And we've also learned more about how they manifest in the real world. I mean, even when I wrote the original article in 99 and then the 2001 book, we knew some of these things. But I, I was impressed in, in looking back over 20 years by how much more we've learned both at the basic science level and also at the applied level. Was there a finding that you found most unexpected? Well, I think, I, I think there were a few that I, that I would think of as, uh, as unexpected. So let's talk about what the seven sins are. So the first three of them have to do with different kinds of forgetting. I call them transients, absent-mindedness, and blocking. Transients refers to forgetting over time. All things being equal, we tend to remember less about what happened a month ago than a day ago, for example. Absent-mindedness refers to forgetting at the interface of attention and memory, like where did I just put my glasses, where are my keys, that sort of thing. And blocking refers to situations in which we're trying to remember, we're paying attention, the information is in memory, it's available, we just can't access it at the time. For example, like a tip of the tongue experience. So we think about transients. I think one of the really interesting, unexpected findings that emerged in the last 20 years came from observations of a group of people who I think have become actually fairly well-known nationally because of their superior memory. They're known as highly superior autobiographical memory. And these are folks who we didn't know about when I wrote the Memory Sins book in 2001, the first report of highly superior uh, autobiographical memory was published back in 2006. And so these are individuals who, if you ask them what happened, for example, on a particular day or date 10 years ago, will be able to recall with reasonable amount of detail what happened in a way that most of us cannot. So if you ask me what happened on May 13th, uh, 2009, it's pretty hopeless, you know, unless it happened to be my birthday or 
something like that. And even then it would be very difficult for me to get back to that kind of information. But these folks do it pretty effortlessly. The first person to be studied in the, and reported in the 2006 paper was uh, referred to then by the initials AJ and later sort of uh, when, when she uh, became well known because her case was on 60 Minutes and other popular shows. She wrote a book and revealed that her name is Jill Price. And one of the things that researchers did with Jill when she first came into the lab was what they called the Easter test, where they asked her about what happened on Easter for many, going back many years. And she had kept diaries that she turned over to the just daily diaries, like a lot of people do. She had turned over to the researchers. So they knew what she said happened. And lo and behold, she could remember something about every one of these Easter's for many years back in, in a way that most people would not or, or could not. So the mere observation of this was something new. And in the book, when I talk about these folks, I, I refer to them because there have been a bunch of others since Jill Price. Her case was publicized. And it turns out that, you know, there, there are a small number of people who meet the strict criteria for highly superior autobiographical memory. And what's really interesting about these individuals and why I talk about them in the chapter on transience is that they seem to illustrate a phenomenon that I called in the book anti-transience, in that what really seems to be different about these folks compared to most of us is that they lose information about their personal experiences over time much more slowly than most of us do. So if you ask me and you ask a person with highly superior autobiographical memory about what happened yesterday, there's not going to be much difference. Or a few days ago, but you go back a month, a few years, that's where the differences come out. So I refer to them as an example of anti-transients. And that also ties into another interesting finding from the last 20 years. And this is something we knew about in psychology for many years prior, but has kind of been revived and rediscovered with some work from people, uh, psychologists like Roddy Rodiger and Kathleen McDermott, Bob Bjork, and others. And it's known in some cases as the testing effect or retrieval practice. And basically what this says is that what the testing effect or retrieval practice effect shows is that if I try to teach you some information, it could be a list of words, it could be material for a course. And then later on, you have the chance to restudy that information or retrieve it. And then I ask, which of those two methods of boosting memory works better? It turns out that testing memory, practicing retrieval, boosts long-term recall. Now, what's interesting about that is that studies have been done that show that this testing effect or retrieval practice effect also shows this phenomenon that I call anti-transience. It slows down forgetting over time. So if you compare restudying and testing at a very short delay, there may be no difference and restudying might even be a little bit better, but you wait a few hours or a few days or a few weeks, and then a very substantial superiority of the testing effect comes out. Putting these two things together, it turns out that it might be that there's kind of a self-testing or retrieval practice effect that accounts for the highly superior autobiographical memory folks remembering this stuff from the remote past so well, because a lot of them do, Jill Price was an extreme example of this, spend a lot of time rehearsing, rehashing, thinking about what's happened in the past. We know from the work I just mentioned that retrieval practice or self-testing can slow down forgetting. So maybe that's why these folks show this 
reduction in forgetting over time or what I call anti-transients. Wow, what an interesting kind of combination of those two findings. You know, a lot of people would wish for a more superior memory. <laughs> Do these individuals struggle at all, though, with their ability from an emotional standpoint? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question because even prior to HSAM, uh, high superior autobiographical memory, uh, there was a very well-known report of a, a nemesis, a memory expert by the name of Sheroshevsky, who was different from these highly superior autobiographical memory folks in that he had an incredible capacity to learn and acquire new information of various kinds and then spew it back in a way that most of us could not. Whereas these HSAM folks, they're great at remembering their personal experiences, but if you give them a list of 100 words to remember, they're not going to do much better than you or I would. Whereas this Deminus Sheroshevsky, he would be able to remember those things really well. And there are other people like him who use mnemonic strategies to remember uh, things very well. But the point about Cheryshevsky was that one of the takeaways was that he was really, he was impaired in some way by his superior memory because his mind was always cluttered with all this irrelevant information that he was involuntarily remembering. And the thought was that it may not be such a good thing to have this kind of extraordinary memory ability because you've got all this stuff floating around your mind and it might prevent you or inhibit you uh, from functioning at a more abstract level because you have so much concrete detail. Now, in these HSAM people, it depends on who you're talking about. So in the case of Jill Price, she did find this to be a real burden in that she would say things like some hurtful experience from years ago that for most of us, the pain may have faded, uh, was still very hurtful to her. And so she found it to be quite a burden. That's not true of all of the highly superior autobiographical memory people. A lot of them uh, kind of enjoy uh, the ability to have this extraordinary memory. So I think it depends on, on a number of individual factors. Well, it's been quite a year and a half. There's been several consequential events that have kind of rocked our society, so to speak, on multiple fronts, health, culture, politics. I'm curious how you see the seven cents kind of playing a role in these experiences and kind of starting with health in your writing, the sin of persistence or the recurrence of unwanted memories is greatest after a traumatic event like abuse or or a natural disaster. Mm -hmm. So it seems like COVID-19 might qualify for that. How do you see our memories of this time playing out? Yeah, that's an interesting and, and timely question. So you're right. Uh, persistence, which is the seventh of the seven sins, can be really uh, psychologically quite crippling when we have a difficult or, or traumatic experience and then we just can't stop it from coming to mind. So those, though, tend to be more unique events or sudden events. It can also be repeated events. For example, uh, people who are in, in war, you know, war veterans may not be plagued just by memory of one event, but by cumulative experience. With respect to COVID, uh, I suspect that if you've had COVID and you've really been traumatized by it and had a difficult time with it, uh, then there might be some element of persistence or even PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder closely associated that could arise if you had a really bad case of it. I think for most people, it's not going to result in kind of a persisting memory. The way I think about it is in terms of the well-known laboratory phenomenon of memory, one of the introductory psychology kind of things that you learn about memory, which uh, goes by the name of the serial position curve. So in 
standard experiments, lab experiments, give people a bunch of words, ask them to recall those words later on. They'll remember the first few very well. That's known as the primacy effect. Then kind of the words in the middle get a bit fuzzy. And then at the very end, uh, they remember the last few very well, the recency effect. And I think something like that might happen with COVID. In other words, most of us will probably have some fairly vivid memory of the very beginning of the pandemic. You know, the last time I went to my office and then I had, a, you know, I, I stayed at home for a year, a year and a half. Um, I think those early events of, I think mostly the second week of March, 2020, probably are things that people have talked about a lot, thought about a lot and will remember vividly. And then maybe um, a recency effect coming out of COVID, even though as we speak now in late July, 2020, it's clear that we're not fully done with this uh, pandemic. But a lot of people are now going back to restaurants, going to baseball games, even, you know, going to concerts. So I think there'll be some recency effects there. But I think for the stint in the middle, people may end up having a fairly poor memory because for many of us who are working from home and so on, we won't have as much of the segmentation of events that we normally would when we're functioning in our normal way going to work or going on trips and vacations, that kind of segments our experience in a way that I think makes it easier to remember particular events. Now, however, we've got like a continuous stream one day kind of melting into the other. And so I suspect that memory for a lot of events, you know, within the period of COVID won't exhibit persistence. It'll just be kind of a, a, a fuzzy, faded memory. That makes complete sense. And so Maybe even the day you get vaccinated might be an example of kind of that bookending that you're referring to. Right, right, exactly. So from a political perspective, the political climate of late is certainly sharply divided and a source of stress for many. You've written about how misinformation after an event can contaminate or corrupt our memory. And we dealt with fake news, alternative facts. And we were exposed to repeated untrue claims after the 2020 presidential election. How my media messaging or political messaging after the election or maybe, you know, the Capitol riot affect our memory for those events? Yeah, we can see in everyday transactions how these events come to be remembered differently, you know, after they've occurred than uh, maybe immediately afterwards. Now, some of that is just intentional, purposeful manipulation of events that isn't really so much about memory. It is more, more about, you know, gaining political favor with a base or something of that nature. But we, um, we certainly do know that misinformation can, as you said, we have many laboratory studies dating back to some of the classic work of Elizabeth Loftus, first in the 1970s, showing how misinformation can contaminate memory. So I think we've definitely got that sort of thing going on. There have even been some interesting studies on this point. So there's a a study that came out uh, a couple of years ago that was looking at how people remember true and false events associated with a referendum on, on abortion in Ireland. Some people were in favor of this, kind of loosening the abortion or restrictions. Others, others were not. And they were shown that their views were assessed prior to an experimental task in which they were shown some photos of events that had really happened in other photos and headlines that were just made up by the experiment. 
And the question was, would people claim falsely to remember some of these headlines that made other side look bad versus their side? And the main finding was that indeed they had a significant false memory rate that was impacted by which side one was on. So if you're on the pro-referendum side, you tend to falsely remember something that makes the anti-referendum side look bad and vice versa. So I think we can see in those kinds of findings that some of what we knew already from cognitive psychology about creation of false memories can interact with our pre-existing knowledge uh, so that we're biased to remember one way or another. And in fact, I, I talk about that study and that in the chapter on what I call bias, which is one of the seven sins referring to how our current knowledge and beliefs can impact how we reconstruct the past. And this is a pretty dramatic uh, example of it. On the cultural front, there has been kind of a long incoming reckoning of our troubled history with racism led by movements like Black Lives Matter and, and certainly tragically, painfully symbolized by George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so on. How do the sins of memory play a role in our understanding of or our reaction to this type of complex situation? Well, I think that's where, again, we, we look to what I call the sin of bias, although a slightly different manifestation of it here. I think many people now become familiar with the term implicit bias, right? which was introduced to the literature by uh, people like my colleague at Harvard, Mazarin Benaji, and her collaborator, uh, Anthony Breenwald. And they were actually building on some earlier work uh, from cognitive psychology and neuroscience that I was involved in, where we were looking at what we call implicit memory. And that's a term that my colleague, Peter Graff, and I introduced to the literature way back in 1985 to talk about situations in which memory can be expressed implicitly without our awareness, without a conscious experience of remembering. And we and others were able to demonstrate that, that happened. And then Benaji Greenwald and others extended that to the domain of social cognition, started talking about implicit bias, and uh, came up with uh, some very clever tests to look at the existence of implicit bias in people, something called the implicit association test that if anybody goes to uh, Project Implicit at Harvard, if you just put that into Google, you can take that test. And basically what it shows is that many of us or most of us will tend to preferentially associate certain positive or negative attributes with, for example, different races. So, you know, white people will tend to preferentially associate good things with white and bad things with black. This is not a conscious racist kind of perspective. It's something that automatically happens. So uh, that's been shown over and over again now in the last 20 years. And again, I talk about this in the new edition of, of the book. And so one thing you also hear a lot about is what's known as implicit bias training. So given that what implicit bias is reflecting is the fact that we're exposed to certain kinds of stereotypes over and over again. And even if we don't consciously embrace them, at a non-conscious level, our performance will show that we've internalized them to some degree, again, even if it's entirely non-conscious. So one question is, can you train people to reduce these kinds of biases? And there have been quite a few studies of that issue, including you know some very large studies with very large numbers of subjects. And the evidence is a bit mixed. There is some evidence that the 
implicit bias training of certain kinds. Uh, there are a variety of approaches that have been attempted, can have a, an impact on these implicit uh, associations. But some of the most recent data indicate that even with some of the effective techniques, the effects tend to dissipate quickly over time. So it's unclear how effective any of these training protocols will be, but that certainly is a very important area of, of research and one that is obviously uh, very timely. I should note that even though some of this work on uh, implicit bias training, the fact that the training effects tend to fade fairly quickly, it's a little bit discouraging. But Banaji and uh, her former graduate student, uh, Tessa Charles, were published a really interesting paper just looking at the results of implicit association tests that people had taken over many years at the Harvard Project Implicit website. And across millions of these tests, what they found that there was some reduction, overall reduction in implicit bias uh, over time for race, for gender, and a couple of others. So sexual orientation is one where biases against uh, non-dominant uh, sexual orientation were sort of reduced over time. So something seems to be happening out there in society in these last 20 years or so where these implicit biases may be because of the way we discuss it and what's presented in media so on are tempering a bit. So, yes, I find that hopeful, but mm -hmm. clearly there's going to be so much work as well-intentioned as these kind of seminars are and so forth that are happening in the workplace and to work on implicit bias, I guess there might be a temptation to think, okay, well, we checked that box. And so <laughs> that's clearly not going to be enough. And it's going to be a longstanding issue, it sounds like. I think so. Um, I think it's something that's going to have to be worked on over a long, long period of time. It's not something that can be changed uh, quickly. Another major change in the last 20 years since you wrote the book has been our relationship with technology and its ubiquitous role in our lives. How has the iPhone always within reach, hours of media scrolling, all of that, how has that changed our memory? And are those things friend or foe? A oh, really interesting question. And I made that one of the uh, update topics in Seven Sins of Memory. And actually since then wrote a more detailed article on this topic of how media and technology may be impacting the seven sins. And it's, it's sort of a complex picture. There are a lot of uh, grand claims out there in the kind of popular press articles that technology is killing our memory or ruining our memory with the idea that, well, if I can just look up a phone, uh, you know, phone number on my iPhone, uh, then I'm not using my memory and through disuse and my memory is going to be gone. If we look at it, what I did was uh, I looked at a few examples of this. And I think there is some evidence that in certain situations, there can be a negative impact of technology on memory, but it's not nearly as general or broad as some people might have you think. So let's just take one example. This is one uh, that I, I talk about in the book and go into more detail in the article, one of several, and that's GPS. So most of us rely on GPS. And there's a legitimate question. If we're relying on GPS and we're not relying on our own spatial navigation skills, is our spatial memory just going to wither away? Some people think that might be the case. When I looked at the literature, what I found was that there's evidence for certain kinds of effects, but the effects are, are not as broad as someone have us believe. So I think there's a, a useful distinction to be made here between what I refer to as 
task-specific, domain-specific, and domain-general effects of technology on memory. GPS is what we're talking about now. So what do I mean by that? Task-specific effect. Well, there are studies that show that if you, for example, in the lab, do a spatial navigation task and some people rely on GPS and other people have to remember uh, information on their own, people who rely on GPS typically will have worse memory for a specific route than people who don't rely on GPS. So that's what I would call tennis specific effect. Now, the question is, does that mean that there might even be a broader effect such that if I rely on GPS a lot, my spatial memory in general beyond that one particular task is going to be impacted. And there, I would say that there's a tiny bit of evidence, but really not much. There is one recent study that looked at spatial memory, people who habitually rely on GPS and found some suggestive evidence that people who use GPS a lot, a very small subsample of people might have worse spatial memory beyond a particular task than those who don't. And then there's the final question, well, could, you know, if I'm relying on GPS law, could that just impact my memory more generally, what I call a domain general effect, so that now I can't remember re- reads, I can't remember uh, verbal information, I can't remember music, I can't remember all kinds of things. And there's no evidence uh, of that. And yet that is the kind of thing that I think is often, if not explicitly claimed, implied by some of these concerns about the impact of uh, technology on memory. The other thing to keep in mind is that technology can be very beneficial in certain ways. So, for example, let's talk about the second of the seven sins that I call absent-mindedness. So forgetting where I put my keys and glasses, that sort of thing. One of the things we've learned, and I talked about this in the 2001 edition, we already knew this thing, is that absent-mindedness tends to thrive when we're trying to, uh, for example, we, we, um, you know, we have a task that we want to perform, we tell ourselves, oh, I've got to go, uh, you know, I've got to go run this errand. But then at the moment that we need to be reminded to do it, there's no retrieval cue and we've become preoccupied with something else. That's when absent-minded forgetting tends to occur. So if we can make a retrieval cue available at the time we need to carry out an action, a lot of evidence shows that we can really have a big impact on absent-minded forgetting. And of course, as most of us know, smartphones and computers can be useful sources of external reminders. So in that sense, they can be really helpful. Now, one of the really dramatic and tragic examples that I I talk about in the updated edition of Seven Sins has to do with a a phenomenon that was not known and may have occurred to some extent uh, when I wrote the 2001 book, but I had never heard of it. I only heard of it shortly after the publication of the book when I got a, a call from a lawyer who told me about this case of a high-functioning woman who's a hospital executive who one day uh, was supposed to take her child to work, her young uh, infant. And this particular day, her routine was changed because her husband usually took a second child to work, but this time she got stuck with, with doing that. And so what happened was when she dropped off the child she usually took to work at daycare, she forgot that there's a little baby in the back seat which who she ordinarily, you know, was not tasked with taking to work and was thinking about her upcoming day and plans and so forth, went to work, left the car, and only hours later learned, you know, the horrific news that uh, her baby had died uh, in a hot car. And then 
since that time, I've learned that this is a pretty regularly occurring phenomenon, probably, you know, occurs 25 times a year, often with very high functioning people. And the circumstances are sadly similar. There may be a change in routine. People may be focused on an upcoming event and critically and related to our previous discussion, there's no retrieval cue to help them remember at the time that they need to carry out the action because who would ever think you could possibly forget that your baby's in the back seat. But this only started when it became necessary to put car seats in the back seat. They were no longer allowed in the front seat. And that took away kind of a reminder cue. You wouldn't think it would be necessary, but this is absent-mindedness. It's very cue dependent. But now a number of like technological uh, devices have been developed to help provide electronic reminders of something you would think, oh, I don't need a reminder that my child's in the back seat. But now there's certain, you know, nice bits of technology that can be used to overcome this horrible kind of memory problem. So on the bright side, I think you can say that, well, technology can help by being able to provide reminders, you know, that can even prevent death in this extreme case. Maybe on a somewhat related note in terms of technology, most of us have spent a good chunk of the last year spending our work life and our personal life virtually. Students certainly spent almost a full year learning through Zoom. Should we expect our memory for things that we did virtually to be different, for things that we learned virtually? That's uh, an interesting question. I don't, I don't think there is necessarily uh, a reason why it would differ. The, the main reason I could think of would be the influence of like multitask, possible influence of multitasking, if that's greater in the Zoom world than in the live world. So we know, again, that one of the sources of absent-minded forgetting, not surprisingly, is when we don't pay attention at the input stage and process information in a way that we can remember later on. And we know from uh, studies of classroom learning that people mind wander along, maybe 30% of the time that you ask a student unexpectedly, or what are you paying attention to? You find out that they're not paying attention to the lecture. They're thinking about uh, their dinner plans or what they did last night. And that was discouraging to those of us like me who uh, lecture uh, <laughs> in classrooms. So what happens in live classrooms? Now, if that's happening to a greater extent in the Zoom world, oh, no. and I don't know of any research on that, but there, there might be some, uh, and it wouldn't surprise me if it's happening to a greater extent, then you could expect a negative impact on learning if people are doing more multitasking, more susceptible to mind wandering, those kinds of things that draw away from the, the kind of the focal attention that's needed to have good memory later on. So the disciplined among us <laughs> may fare better. Yes. Let me think of, again, another angle uh, on technology is that we're sort of all, quote unquote, expert photographers now. And kind of younger generations now and upcoming basically have a copious photographic record of their yeah. lives. So instead of me or, or you, or you've got maybe a mom's old photo albums to, to peruse and look back on, they have basically a daily photographic and oftentimes a video record of what they did, and they can go back to that over and over again. So will their memory for their childhood be better or more accurate than ours? That's an interesting question. I don't think I can say yes or no to it. What I can say is that we know that photo review has multiple effects on memory. So reviewing photographs, we actually did some research on this in my lab back in the late 1990s, Reviewing photographs of an experienced event, not surprisingly, can boost memory for that event. 
So if, uh, you know, one's reviewing their Instagram photos and so forth, talking about them, thinking about them of events that you've experienced, you could expect that you might maintain that memory longer over time. However, we also know some other interesting things about effects of photos on retrieval. We know that, for example, suppose you post a picture of one event in a vacation that you took. And every time you see that photo, you think of that particular event. But you don't necessarily think of other things that happened during that vacation. There is evidence to show that boosting memory, for example, for a, a photo can actually harm memory, impair memory for related events that you don't remember. That's been known for some time in the literature. It's known as retrieval-induced forgetting. And it happens not only with photographs, but I think it's very relevant to, to your question about the impact on, of photos on memory. So there could be some boosting of events that are, are reviewed and then some possibly inhibition or impairment of related events that you don't think about. A further point is that we know that when you see photographs, that they can sometimes create false memories. So I talked earlier about that interesting study of the uh, referendum in Ireland, where seeing like a photograph and a headline induced a false memory. We know from lab research that, for example, this is work we did in my lab a long time ago in the late 90s, that if people view a series of simple actions that people take. And then later on, they're shown photographs of some of the actions that had occurred. And also you slip in a few actions that could have occurred, but didn't, that those photos will later on result in a certain proportion of false memories. We found our effect, particularly in older adults, but other studies since that found uh, these kinds of effects in younger adults as well. So the answer is, uh, I think that photo review can Prove memory for an event that actually happened. It can possibly impair memory for related events that aren't retrieved. And in the case, for example, of looking at somebody else's Instagram, you might become convinced that you participated in an event that oh. you really didn't participate in. Oh, dear. Multi-layered, to say the least. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Switching gears for a moment. I did not know until prepping for our chat today that in Hebrew and in Greek, that the word sin is an archery term that means to miss the mark. I love that. So although you call them sins in your work, you also do point out that they also provide a window into the more adaptive features of memory. Can you talk about how the kind of vices can also be virtues? Yeah, a great point, because that's one of the most important things to me about the way I think about the seven sins that they can be annoying, they can be dangerous. We talked about absent-minded forgetting in some of the tragic cases. They can be upsetting in the case of persistence. And that's why, by analogy with the seven ancient deadly sins, I refer to them as sins. But one of the most important points made in the 2001 book, again, in the more recent edition, is that despite these problems that they cause, they're really costs that we pay for many benefits in memory. So maybe the easiest uh, example to see right away is persistence that we talked about earlier. So persistence can be really uh, psychologically disabling. You experience the trauma, you can't get it out of your mind, it keeps you up at night and so on. But on the other hand, it's a good thing that our memories work in such a way that we do have very vivid memories of events that might threaten our survival. 
We want a memory system that's going to allow us to remember threatening events, even though there might be some psychological costs for that. So I think that's a very clear example of where the, the memory sin is really the other side of the coin of a very adaptive feature of memory. And I think we can say the same thing about some of the distortion-related sins. So one of them that I haven't said much about yet is misattribution. So this is where we may recall some aspect of Moon and Bent correctly, uh, but misremember where it came from. We might claim, oh, I, I learned this really interesting new fact when I was listening to the radio the other day, when in reality, it turns out, for example, that a friend told me about that. So I may misattribute information that I recall to the wrong source, and that can lead to some very striking memory errors. So there is a, a well-known case a number of years ago. Some people will remember the Oklahoma City bombing way back in 1995, and there was a search, a uh, national search after the bombing for two individuals who were initially referred to as John Doe number one and John Doe number two. John Doe number one was Timothy McVeigh. He was eventually convicted and executed for his role in bombing. But John Doe number two was never found. Uh, there was another guy, Terry Nichols, who was associated with this. He was not John Doe number two. So it turned out John Doe number two was the product of a kind of classical memory misattribution. There was a person who was present at the body shop where McVeigh rented the van that he used to carry out the bombing. And he's the one who said, I remember this guy. And he gave a very accurate description of McVeigh. And then he gave a detailed description of this other guy he said was with McVeigh at the body shop. Well, it turned out that after some uh, exhaustive detective work, that that second person was an innocent man, a private in the U.S. Army, who was in the body shop the day after McVeigh was there. He was not with me, but the witness mixed these two things up in his memory. So that's a classic kind of misattribution error. So why is our memory prone to, you know, mixing up elements of past experiences? Well, one of the lines of research that I've really been active in in the last 15 years, and so it was not really discussed at all in the original seven sets of memory, but I'll go, go into it in this new updated edition has to do with the idea that memory is not really just about the past, that the key function of memory is to allow us to think ahead and to simulate future events. So we want to be able to use our past experience in a flexible way, recombine elements of past experiences so we can simulate novel upcoming events. So for example, imagine that, you know, I have to have a very difficult conversation with a colleague of mine. When I was chair of our psychology department, I had to have a few <laughs> such conversations. And what I wanted to do would be try to recall what I knew about that person, recall other situations in which I had to deal with similar problems. And then I would kind of recombine those elements and run the simulation of this upcoming event. And suppose I try this, suppose I try that. So my memory is very flexible in allowing me to recombine information in that way that's useful for thinking about the future and one of the points that my colleagues and I have tried to make, and we recently provided some experimental support for it, is that this flexibility of memory that allows us to recombine information in an adaptive way can be the source of some of these memory misattribution errors. So when we misattribute by mixing up elements of two different events, what we might be seeing there is a feature of memory 
that is actually uh, very adaptive when we want to use memory flexibly to recombine information and run simulations of novel events. Because after all, the future is rarely identical to the past. So we want to be able to take what we know and recombine it and, and imagine how we're going to deal with novel events. And our idea is that that flexible ability to flexibly recombine may also underlie some of the you know, memory sins like misattribution. So it seems like in addition to spending a lot of time overestimating what we think our memory should be able to do, we're underestimating its role in our future. I think a lot of people don't conceptualize memory that way. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, most of the time when we talk about memory, we think about uh, reminiscing about the past, uh, reflecting on things that we've done, but we don't realize that it's really so critical for our ability to imagine the future. And so my lab and others over the last 15 years have done a lot of work that really shows very nicely that a lot of the processes that underlie remembering the past also underlie imagining the future. We've done this through brain imaging studies where we put people in the scanner. We might uh, show them a simple word cue like vacation and ask them, trying to remember a vacation that you took uh, within the past few years in one condition. And in another condition, we might ask them to imagine an upcoming vacation they might take in the next few years. We do this with a lot of different kinds of cues and compared to control conditions where they're given the same kinds of cues but asked to do simple visuospatial or semantic processing tests that don't involve remembering or imagining personal episode, we see increased activity in many of the same brain regions when people remember the past and imagine the future. Regions that have been classically associated with memory, like the hippocampus, will be more familiar to many in parts of the, the frontal lobe. A lot of those regions come online to the same extent that people imagine the future as when they remember the past. We and others have also shown that there are many striking cognitive similarities. So for example, older adults compared to younger adults tend to remember past events with less rich episodic detail, details about what happened, where it happened, when it happened. And when you look at older adults versus younger adults imagining future events, you see the same pattern. They imagine future events with less specific episodic detail. Older adults for both the past and future may tend to provide more commentary and semantic information. So it looks very similar in the case of aging and many studies of uh, amnesic patients too. Not all, but many of them have shown that amnesic patients, and these are people by definition, have difficulties remembering past experiences as a result of uh, brain damage. Many of them also show problems imagining future events. They come up with very sketchy or vague descriptions. Some of them can't even do the task at all. Wow. One thing, as we've been talking, that we haven't touched much on is, is the role of emotion and memory. And I think about Maya Angelou has a pretty famous quote, right? They'll forget what you said, they'll forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. How does that stack up with the neuroscience of memory? I think it stacks up very well. I mean, so it's been shown over and over again in experimental studies that by and large for emotionally arousing events, we tend to, again, remember them more vividly and in many situations uh, more accurately than uh, non-emotional events. And we know that there's some neural circuitry that's specifically associated with this memory boost 
probably the best studied part of the brain that neuroscientists and neuropsychologists will think of when they talk about, when we talk about emotional memory. It's a brain region known as the amygdala, a small almond shape on a structure near the hippocampus. And imaging and other studies have shown that the amygdala tends to become more active when we remember emotional versus non-emotional events and may interact with the hippocampus so as to produce this memory, uh, memory improvement for emotionally arousing events. It's not just the amygdala, there are other important parts of the brain that are involved in emotion and emotional memory, but that's the one that uh, people have studied the most. I want to circle back just for a moment to your line of work, again, with this imagination of the future and, and so on. And you mentioned that individuals uh, with amnestic memories have trouble engaging in that task actively, or perhaps at all. Is this something that we should be using clinically? We use a lot of tests looking at the more traditional forms of memory, but should we be applying that and having them go through that type of exercise to help identify the extent of memory impairment? I think so. I think it would be a useful addition clinically. As I said, not every single amnesic patient, uh, at least reported in the literature, shows this uh, effect. It may be that with very restricted hippocampal damage, this effect is not as robust as with more extensive damage. But I think it, it really does impact how patients function in everyday life. Again, if we think of the ability to use memory to imagine the future, we want to know, is this something that is severely impaired in a patient with memory problems? Or maybe... Not so. Again, it's not a guarantee that every single patient uh, with memory problems will, will show also a future thinking deficit. But because it's so relevant to everyday life, I think it should be an important part of clinical assessment. Makes sense. In the past 20 years, <laughs> since the first book, have you come across any new techniques that we should all be doing in our day-to-day life to reduce transients, for example, or help out other memory vices? Yeah, good question. I think what I talked about earlier, retrieval practice, the testing effect, that's certainly one. Now, again, we knew about that before, but we didn't know about it in nearly the detail that we do now. And we didn't know how helpful it could be specifically with reducing uh, transients. One of the problems that has always existed with transferring knowledge about what improves memory in the lab to everyday life is that some of the things that work really well, like visual imagery mnemonics, imagining events in your mind that it may be, you know, bizarre or really uh, compelling. They do work well, but they tend to be things that people have difficulty using on their own. So the question of transfer to everyday life becomes very relevant. Self-testing, I think, is a lot easier to use. So I think that this work on the testing effect and the idea that you can boost your memory by simply just self-testing about something that just happened that you want to remember, a piece of information if you're in a course, for example, or the name of a, a face. My colleagues and I, years ago, back way back in the 1980s, published some research showing how if you do something called space retrieval, which is retrieving names at increasingly longer delays after you, for example, meet a new person, that can be very beneficial for memory. And I think we now know a lot more about that kind of effect. So that certainly is one. And then I, you know, I think just making intelligent use of, of technology, particularly for prevention of absent-mindedness, is something that, again, we sort of knew about in 2001, but we have so many, you know, more uh, avenues now to pursue. Is there a project in your lab that you're most excited about at the moment? Yeah, uh, there, there are a number of things going on. I think one thing we haven't talked about, but I think that 
is, is quite exciting. And it's an extension of the work we're talking about with memory and future thinking is the relationship of memory and creativity. That's something that we've just gotten into over the last few years. And what we've been seeing, and we've got some ongoing work on this as well, is that there's good evidence to believe that our episodic memories, our memories for particular experiences, can be helpful in boosting our ability to think creatively. So let me give you a concrete example, a study from a few years ago, and then we're doing some new work on this now. There's a test that's known in the literature as the alternate uses test. It's a very simple way of assessing a particular form of creativity known as divergent thinking. So alternate uses test might be, I would give you a word such as brick and ask you to come up with novel and appropriate uses for brick. And so we see, well, how many of those can you come up with in a certain period of, of time? And other common objects like that. It's a well-established, well-worn test of the form of creativity known as divergent thinking. So what we have been able to show is that if you put people through a training procedure that in my lab we call an episodic specificity induction, this is just a way of getting people to kind of ramp up their episodic memory for a past experience. So in our experiments, people would see a video and then in one condition, they'd be asked to remember that video in as much detail as they can. The idea is we're really activating episodic retrieval processes versus another condition where they might just get their general impressions of the video. So if they're thinking back to the video, but they're not unpacking episodic details. And then we give them an alternate uses task after this specificity induction where it kind of primed or ramped up episodic memory versus the control. And what we have found in several studies is that there is indeed a boost in the alternate uses test. So you're now coming up with more novel uses of objects that have nothing to do with the episodic memory procedure you just went through, but it's like you're in the mode of coming up with lots of episodic details, and this seems to help you to think creatively. So we've been doing some work uh, recently where we've been looking not only at the, what parts of the brain are involved, but some recent work has looked at, for example, what happens when you use a procedure known as transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS, to inhibit a part of the brain that we know plays a role in episodic memory. It's called the angular gyrus. It's part of the parietal lobe. And what we have found, this is some work by, led by Preston Tackrell, who's a postdoc with me. And the study showed that when you apply TMS, you can knock out to the angular gyrus. You can re reduce the way in which people perform or impair the way in which people perform on the alternate uses test and on a future imagining test. And fMRI data showed that effect was mediated in part by a reduction in activity in the hippocampus. The hippocampus is connected to the angular gyrus. So when you zap the angular gyrus in the parietal lobe through connections, you also impact the hippocampus. And this study showed that hippocampal activity went down, your ability to imagine future events went down, your ability to think creatively went down. And so, we're doing some work now trying to understand better exactly uh, what's going on to produce that effect. So that's one avenue that I'm pretty excited about, the link between episodic memory and creative thinking. So if there's one piece of advice that you could sort of impart to the audience about brain health or memory health, what might it be? 
Ah, that's a, that's a good question. I would say that one of the things we do know from uh, work with aging and brain health, particularly as people are getting older, is that uh, just continued use of memory, I think, uh, can be helpful to maintaining it. But I think what I would say is kind of combining an active use of memory with an intelligent use of our technological external devices. So staying active, using our memory when we can, but also, you know, relying on external devices in, in ways that can be uh, beneficial. Another thing that really isn't directly a memory strategy, but something that has been shown to impact brain structures involved in memory and memory performance is uh, simple aerobic exercise. Three 40-minute walks a week has been shown to have positive impact on the hippocampus and other physiological measures, as well as on actual measures of, of memory. So I think that's so it's not specifically a memory strategy, but it impacts memory in a beneficial way. Well, I could listen to you talk all day and pepper you with questions all day, but we'll end there, I think. And I'll just want to say thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Enjoy the conversation. Well, that does it for my conversation with Dr. Schachter. Make sure to check out the updated 20th anniversary edition of The Seven Sins of Memory out this September. For more information about the NAND Foundation and neuropsychology, visit nandfoundation.org. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Enjoy it next time on Brain Beat.